Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. CNN chairman Chris Licht strong-armed, intimidated, and censored the network's only internal critic of its Trump-Nuremberg rally. And Licht manufactured the crowd reaction during the broadcast by having a stage manager tell the audience it literally could not boo or show any disrespect. These shocking but somehow not surprising details revealed Friday night, along with the inevitable reality that the Trump stunt not only did not provide CNN with any ratings bump lasting longer than 90 minutes, but it has actually cost the network viewership apparently around 8% of it so far. First, Chris Licht, weasel, anti-journalistic thug, putting the quote, fear of God into Oliver Darcy. As I mentioned here on Friday, Darcy, author of the CNN Reliable Sources newsletter, has been the lone CNN front-facing employee to even acknowledge the supernova of criticism that has engulfed CNN and Licht and Trump. In newsletter tradition, that reporting has been austere, calm, dignified, and most importantly, balanced. Early Thursday morning, he printed 13 separate brief on-the-record criticisms of the town hall and the CNN decision to manufacture it for Trump, but he also printed nearly as many defenses and compliments, probably all he could find. His only personal interjection was in the opening sentence, quote, It's hard to see how America was served by the spectacle of lies that aired on CNN Wednesday evening. 
As I also mentioned Friday, less than nine hours later, licked a petty, self-absorbed, neurotic man with an ego too vast for measurement by human devices closed his internal defense of the disaster on a CNN conference call by focusing on that very same word Darcy had, quote, America was served very well by what we did last night. Well, now we know what happened next. Friday evening, Puck News blasted out its story of Chris Licht calling Oliver Darcy onto his carpet. Quoting Puck's sources, Licht summoned Darcy and his editor John Passantino to a meeting with himself, CNN comms chief Chris Carati, editorial executive vice president Virginia Mosley, and senior vice president of global news Rachel Smolkin, in which they told Darcy that his coverage had been too emotional and repeatedly stressed the importance of remaining dispassionate when covering the news, be it CNN or any other media organization. The first of two quick asides here. I have had one-on-one -on -one and group conversations with Chris Licht, and his amorality serves his tonality very well. He can be smarmy or cold-blooded or anything else on that spectrum. I would expect Puck's sources may have also left out one other detail here. There was probably also somebody at that meeting from Human Resources, and this was probably a potential setup of Darcy and his editor, Passantino, so that if and when they do something else Licht does not like, or if Licht wants to make up some allegation against either man, Licht can then fire them. Back to Puck's reporting. It says that Darcy did not roll over. Again, quoting their coverage, Darcy stood by his work and pushed back on the emotional characterization, one source with knowledge of the meeting said. But afterward, two sources who heard about the meeting described him as visibly shaken. Quote, they put the fear of God into him, one source said. Unquote. The second quick aside now, Licht's fixation on this word emotional in his criticism of Darcy, that does not mean he actually literally meant that that was his complaint with Darcy's work. It was a filler, a code word, something to put in the template. It was probably chosen because it was a word which the famously semi-literate Licht actually knows. Chris Licht wanted to say, I'm certain of it, that Darcy's coverage had been too anti-Chris Licht. Yet there is an irony in his choice of that word emotional and then its mate, dispassionate. Dispassionate. Oh, yeah. Is that what the Trump audience was at your CNN rally, Chris? Dispassionate? Before we resume looking at the censoring of Oliver Darcy, this is where a second report from Puck News comes into play. Matthew Bartlett, a Republican political consultant who attended the event, said, quote, the floor manager came out ahead of time and said, please do not boo. Please be respectful. You were allowed to applaud, unquote. That is a time-tested and somewhat clever way of making sure you will not hear dissent from the mob mentality, the same thing you witnessed at every Trump event, and certainly you would not have had any idea of the silent disgust this same Republican Bartlett said was prevalent in the crowd. 
We have to seriously wonder now if the terms under which Trump agreed to appear in this monstrosity on CNN, the deal he said they gave him, included those instructions to the audience. Going into it, the only possible justification for this journalistic treaty of Munich was the possibility that one of the crowd members would turn out to be one of the nearly extinct species of rational Republicans, or at least a DeSantis guy, and he or she either would get an actual question in or would shout or boo from the audience. And now we know that would never have happened. And Trump already knew it wouldn't happen on stage. From The Guardian's Hugo Lowell on Friday, quote, Trump team also figured that CNN worked for its needs because it could have Caitlin Collins as the moderator, who has taken care to preserve her relationship with the ex-president. And what relationship is that? And which Caitlin Collins was it with? Was it more like her pointed stance pushing back against Trump from her days as a CNN White House correspondent? Or was it more like the squealing fascist she still was in the video clip that's been playing on social media in which as an entertainment writer working for Tucker Carlson at the Daily Caller, she guested on the Fox Morning Show and told Steve Ducey that George Soros is trying to restructure society. By the way, I did just ask a rhetorical question there. We all know which Caitlin Collins Trump thought he could rely on on Wednesday night, and the results proved Trump correct. Trump is now, in fact, fundraising off this farce. T-shirts with a picture of him and the CNN logo on it, only with the C replaced by T for Trump. This is TNN. Nice work, Blicked. Back to the timeline as it is slowly leaking out. We also have a snippet from what was going on backstage just as the unnamed floor manager was pre-censoring the audience. The Guardian also reported, quote, Trump told Licht backstage that he would boost their ratings, to which Licht nodded and said he should have, quote, a good conversation and have fun. I mean, imagine the stupidity the naivete, the lack of any moral grounding or any connection to reality for the head of an American news organization of any size or shape to look into the dead, scheming, soulless eyes of a man who spent all of his last two months in office trying to overturn the election and overthrow the government and telling him to have fun. Say, Adolf, have fun out there. Hey, Pol Pot, have a good conversation. Stalin, knock him dead. The question still remains what Chris Licht got for his glad handing of pure evil wearing an excessively long tie, what he got for beating up the sole voice of even milk toast dissent within CNN. And the earliest data is in. It came in on Friday as well, and it suggests he got a loss of 8% of CNN's primetime audience. On Tuesday night, PT, pre-Trump, CNN averaged 589,000 total viewers throughout primetime, 134,000 in the advertising demo of viewers aged 25 to 54. On Thursday night, AT, after Trump, the numbers were down to 538,000 total and 124,000 in the demo, and that is an 8% loss. 
not all that much worse than CNN's last year of ratings under Licked, which have been the TV equivalent of stick a mirror under CNN's nose to see if it's still breathing. But it is conclusive evidence that the Trump farce on Wednesday gained the network absolutely nothing in terms of audience. Just as on that night, it was clear Trump's viewers left as soon as he stopped talking. That was at 9.10 Eastern. By 10 Eastern or so, as I have mentioned, CNN was again in last place in cable news. Now for a brief moment about the loudest voices inside Vichy CNN. This happened too late Thursday night for me to have seen it, and judging by the ratings, nobody else saw it either. But CNN gave Caitlin Collins her own primetime hour Thursday night, a preview of the permanent primetime assignment Licked incredibly thinks will pull the network out of the crapper. The first topic of the Caitlin Collins show was... Caitlin Collins. And the opening panel was a fawning collection of political opportunists. And guess what? They all thought Caitlin Collins was great, and they wanted to tell her so. It was a sad-looking group, something between those crazy Russian TV commentators calling for the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine and the collection of silent film stars shown morosely playing bridge in the classic movie Sunset Boulevard. I mean, David Axelrod is still alive? Maggie Haberman? The hapless Van Jones? Was this the night, Van Jones, that Caitlin Collins truly became president? And of course, that means we have to circle back and recognize that if they are Vichy CNN, then their Marshall Patin is Anderson freaking Cooper. Boiled alive at every corner online and off for attacking his own viewers with the now eternal career ending staying in your silo quote. Cooper actually went back on the air Friday night. Not one mention of the blowback against him, his sanctimonious assault on his own fans, nor the ludicrousness of his argument, which I guess boils down to, you peons must all expose yourself to Trump, I guess, before Trump exposes himself to you. The impeccable Philip Bump of the Washington Post was ready, as always, with the receipts, as the kiddos say. He would have made a great founding member for the Society for American Baseball Research. Again, Friday night, Bump wrote, quote, CNN has collectively mentioned the supporters of Obama, Romney, Clinton, and President Biden about 10,000 times combined since January 2010. It has mentioned Trump's supporters more than... 22,000 times since then, unquote. Phil Bump says it's the same on the other cable news channels, twice as many references to Trump supporters as all other political supporters combined. So Anderson, there is no silo. There is no listening only to people you agree with. And clearly there is no future for Anderson Cooper. I have endured plenty of live fricasseeing on social media, and I have seen others endure far worse. But what differed about this time, what differed about the response to Anderson Cooper and this amazing condescension of his was he has been rejected by his own side. Some of us, I think, came close to capturing this, but not as close and not as angrily and not as much with a sense of being personally hurt 
as the former CNN analyst Sonny Hostin on The View on Thursday. This is extraordinary, worth hearing in full before we finally get back to poor old Oliver Darcy, especially given that, as you will hear, she describes herself as a friend of Anderson Cooper. I think that you don't give a bigot and a racist and a misogynist and a liar and a cheater and a sexual abuser and a, a defamer a platform of three million people. And I'm saddened. Uh, I used to work for CNN for quite some time. Anderson Cooper has been my friend for over 20 years. And I'm saddened that he tried to gaslight me yesterday by saying that people are in silos. People aren't living in a silo. They are choosing to listen to the lies or not. 46.9% of people voted for Trump in 2020, but he lost the popular vote by over 7 million people. We know who this man is. We learned who this man is, and we did not need to see what we saw. I think that that town hall will be studied in journalism schools around the country as to what not to do. Yes. It was not fact-checked appropriately. I don't believe, she tried. again, she tried, yeah, the, the girl tried. Let's give not her some good credit enough here. in that type of situation. Can, I, can I just not be interrupted for a second? Um, she didn't have the range. He agreed to the interview because he knew he could steamroll her. That's not fair. Jake Tapper would have done it anyway. Would have done a better job. And I will tell you that remember, Trump walked out of a 60 minutes interview with Leslie Stahl because she was fact-checking him in real time every single time. It's time for some real introspection at CNN. Because I often thought, like just Judge uh, Brandeis, the Supreme Court Justice actually Brandeis, that sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants. Right. <clears throat> this time... But that's what this that is. No, CNN went with Les Moonves. This was a business decision. Oh. Les Moonves said this was awful for the country, but it was good for CBS. This was CNN. awful for the country. CBS. It was awful for the country, but congratulations, CNN, for making a little bit of money on the backs of our democracy. Did anybody see Anderson Cooper's face after that? No. Well, we'll just look around the studio for it later. It probably popped off just like his limbs did after Sonny Hostin took him the F apart. Well, now finally we can come back to poor Mr. Darcy. I noted here yesterday that the silence inside CNN, on the record anyway, was both sad and terrifying. The decisions and the deciders who inflicted upon us the Trump town hall reflected journalistic malpractice and citizenship betrayal. But Anderson Cooper's maudlin and condescending attack on his own audience and the utter silence of Wolf Blitzer and Jake Tapper and Aaron Burnett and all of CNN's reporters and commentators, those are different. Those are moral failings. If one of those people stood up and protested, Licht's support with his fascist masters might be irreparably or at least significantly damaged. If two of them stood up and protested together, the support might disappear. If three of them stood up together, Chris Licht might disappear. Ladies and gentlemen of CNN, do you stand for anything? Does that organization mean anything to you? I was not there on day one, but I was there at the end of year one, and I'm damn proud of it. And I grieve at what Chris Licht has done to it by prostituting it. You are the ones, Wolf Blitzer, 
Jake Tapper, Aaron Burnett, even Anderson Cooper up there on your high horse. You are the ones keeping the original noble idea news unrestrained by the need to cut it off and put on the Beverly Hillbillies at 8 p.m. while still making money. You are the ones charged by history and by your own ambitions and principles with protecting the idea and the purpose of CNN and in a broader sense with protecting the idea and the purpose of journalism and in a broader sense still with protecting the idea and the purpose of American democracy. Are you going to do that? Are you going to risk something for it? Have you really all been working there for decades and not yet made enough money to cover you for the rest of your lives? Is there anyone at CNN willing to place their craft and their responsibility ahead of their paycheck? Or <laughs> not, not me. Just let's have the media critic do it by himself. Let's have Oliver Darcy represent the side of Murrow and Cronkite and Bill Zimmerman and Lou Waters, and John Holloman and Bernard Shaw in the hotel room in Baghdad, and even crazy old Ted Turner himself. Let's let Oliver Darcy be the only one willing to say, if we're serious about presenting both sides, shouldn't we present the side that disagreed with doing this? Shouldn't you go in there with Oliver Darcy and say, enough? Because guess what? Staying out of the fray and protecting your paycheck may work short term, may work for years. Or then again, it may not work at all. There are a lot of ambitious anchors without any standards out there, and they're all younger than you are. Maybe it would be better if you took the risk now in defense of, you know, the United States of America, even if Chris Licht did then get you fired. I mean, which would you rather have on your tombstone? I got fired because I protested when my network's new paste-eating boss, Chris Licht, sold us out to Donald Trump. Or I got fired because they wanted to expand Caitlin Collins tonight to five hours long. Still ahead on this edition of Countdown, not going to lie, the rest of this is just a repeat of Friday's episode number 200. My idea in doing this special edition was I was going to put about four or five minutes of headlines on at the start of it, then just redo all of Friday's show, and I was going to do it as short as I could. Well, I'm not good at doing short. Anyway, Friday's episode number 200 is good, but if you've heard it already and you want to hit stop now, talk to you Monday. If not, I've got the other CNN talent, in quotes, who defended this monstrosity. Also, the James Thurber story that perfectly fits all of the stories of Trump, but particularly this one. And I've got what is still the latest on whether the president will use the 14th Amendment to fight off Kevin McCarthy and the debt limit hostage takers. That's next. This is Countdown.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Washington, more and more signs that the administration may actually do something innovative and strident about the debt ceiling. The follow-up meeting at the White House today has been canceled. Speaker McCarthy says it's because there has not been enough progress. Others in D.C. say this is because the president is, in fact, willing to try the 14th Amendment, willing to try to bypass the Republican hostage drama altogether by saying he is constitutionally obligated to pay the national debt, and it says so in the 14th. The process has been debated, though. When Joe Biden hinted at this the other day, he indicated it would have to be litigated, implying he would do it. Others would then sue to stop him. But the Cornell law professor Michael Dorff says he's got it backwards, that people in favor of using the amendment should sue first. They should claim in court that any failure or delay by the government in paying them what it owes them would cause profound injury. Dorff says a suit like 
like that was in fact filed on Monday. The NAGE, the National Association of Government Employees, sued Fed Chair Janet Yellen on other grounds, trying to get a judge to rule that the debt default concept is illegal because of separation of powers and the Fifth Amendment, and that the debt ceiling itself is unconstitutional. Now, look, we are here now in deep, deep legal waters, and I'm getting dizzy, and I feel like the Pequod is sinking again. But I think I understand this, and whatever it is, it's a damn sight better of a plan than defaulting or giving in to this mountebank Kevin McCarthy. Thank you, Nancy Faust. And Dateline New York, the Manhattan District Attorney today charges Daniel J. Penny in the chokehold death of the houseless man in the New York subway, Jordan Neely. Second degree manslaughter on a simple premise. A man threatening people in public, like on a subway train, might be restrained or even injured in the process by Good Samaritans, and the Good Samaritans get a medal. But choking the man to death is not any of that. The other problem here is that virtually every news story refers to the now defendant Daniel J. Penny as a, quote, Marine veteran, as if we were back on the Pequod, as I mentioned in the A block and just now. His military status has got nothing to do with this. In fact, it gives him a benefit of the doubt he clearly does not deserve. If the roles had been reversed and Penny had been choked to death by a disturbed man named Jordan Neely, the headlines would be calling Jordan Neely something like the subway strangler. Coming up, Fridays with Thurber and only one story that he could possibly offer to us today, the greatest man in the world. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Tony Nunziato. Tony is standing by his guy, George Santos. George Santos, who has been charged with everything but stealing false teeth off the corpses in the mortuary. But Tony Nunziato says he is not ready to call for Santos's resignation from Congress. I'll wait to see what they say in court, Nunziato says. Especially lately, we see many people being indicted, but they were wrong and they were set free. And who is this Tony Nunziato who is so optimistic about the chance that somehow they've got the wrong guy for all 13 George Santos indictments? Tony Nunziato is chairman of the Republican Party of Queens. And when you are the chairman of the Republican Party of Queens, it must be very difficult to say, yes, all right, I'll give up on the first guy we actually got elected to the House in a million years. The runner-up, this Vivek Ramaswamy guy. I am beginning to think there are people supporting his long-shot bid for the Republican presidential nomination just for the LARFs, just because he's so dumb. Ramaswamy is 37 years old and his big we have to change the constitution idea and they all have big we have to change the constitution ideas. His is he wants to raise the voting age. He wants to raise it from 18 to 25 unless you are in the military or you are a first responder or you pass the same civics test they give people who are applying for US citizenship. Now I mean the civics test idea is not a bad one. 
But give me one example of anybody in this country getting smarter about civic responsibility between 18 and 25 that they'd automatically not have to take the test. I mean, make it between 18 and 95. Nobody knows civics in this country anymore. I mean, be careful on this. If you're actually going to institute a civic awareness test before voting, you might shave the voting population down to like 100,000 people. But that's besides the point. Let's say Ramaswamy somehow becomes the Republican nominee and he really pushes this raise the voting age thing and you are 18 next year or you are, say... 19 or a young 20 and he expects you to vote for him with the premise that voting for him would be he's going to take away your right to vote for him again in 2028 who is going to do this i'll vote for him and then i won't vote for him because he won't let me vote anymore more importantly who's dumb enough to run for office and say vote for me and i'll take away your right to vote ramaswamy is just a dope but the winner Poppy Harlow, one of the two surviving co-hosts of CNN's morning show. And look, we all get it. We've all worked with a Poppy Harlow. Management could come over and poop in their hat, and your, your own Poppy Harlow would just congratulate them on their aim. But her tweet about the you-know was just, wow, quoting... What Caitlin Collins showed the world last night was a masterclass in interviewing, real-time fact-checking, and holding power to account. She is unflappable and was born for moments like this. So much love and respect, unquote. It's just a little over the top, Pop. Makes me think that the internal dialogue here is, I got rid of that loser Don Lemon, and now Collins just self-destructed, and soon it'll be mine, all mine. CNN This Morning with... Poppy Harlow. Poppy, CNN this morning with Poppy Harlow. Just Poppy Harlow. You got it? Harlow, today's worst Poppy in the world. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. 
You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Countdown with all the headlines, there is only one Thurber story with which to resume our Friday readings, a tale as fresh as if it were written right after the Trump Town Hall by people who then stopped watching CNN. The greatest man in the world. Next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help every dog has its day. The irony of the name of the 77-pound Brindle Mix puppy that they are ready to kill at the New York Pound is almost too much to bear. He's called Free. His human dumped Free there, left him to die, said he couldn't pay for him anymore just 12 days ago. Free knows he's been abandoned. His usual affectionate nature is gone. He's 17 months old, and the biggest complaints against him had been if you give him a treat and for some reason you try to take the treat away, he growls. And he's excitable to the point of being pushy. Well, I'm excitable to the point of being pushy. For this, they will kill him. He needs an adopter or a foster or our pledges to help a rescue save him. Look for free on my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and free thanks you. Master, the work of James Thurber. There is a short film of this story. I don't think it really does it justice. I don't think anything does it justice. Occasionally, real life does do it justice. I've thought I've seen this story playing out in real time in this country almost every day for about seven years. Sit back and relax, if relax is the right word for it. For the Greatest Man in the World, by James Thurber. Looking back on it now, from the vantage point of 1940, one can only marvel that it had not happened long before it did. The United States of America had been, ever since Kitty Hawk, blindly constructing the elaborate petard by which sooner or later it must be hoist. 
It was inevitable that someday there would come roaring out of the skies a national hero of insufficient intelligence, background, and character successfully to endure the mounting orgies of glory prepared for aviators who stayed up for a long time or flew a great distance. Both Lindbergh and Byrd, fortunately for national decorum and international amity, had been gentlemen. So had our other famous aviators. They wore their laurels gracefully, withstood the awful weather of publicity, married excellent women, usually fine family, and quietly retired to private life and the enjoyment of their varying fortunes. No untoward incidents on a worldwide scale marred the perfection of their conduct on the perilous heights of fame. The exception to the rule was, however, bound to occur, and it did. In July 1937, when Jack Pal Smirch, erstwhile mechanics helper, in a small garage in Westfield, Iowa, flew a second-hand, single-motored, Bresthaven Dragonfly 3 monoplane all the way around the world without stopping. Never before in the history of aviation had such a flight as Smirch's even been dreamed of. No one had even taken seriously the weird floating auxiliary gas tanks, invention of the mad New Hampshire professor of astronomy, Dr. Charles Lewis Gresham, upon which Smirch placed full reliance. When the garage worker, a slightly built, surly, unprepossessing young man of 22, appeared at Roosevelt Field early in July 1937, slowly chewing a great quid of scrap tobacco and announced, Nobody ain't seen no flying yet! The newspapers touched briefly and satirically upon his projected 25,000-mile flight. Aeronautical and automotive experts dismissed the idea curtly, implying that it was a hoax, a publicity stunt. The rusty, battered, second-hand plane wouldn't go. The Gresham auxiliary tanks wouldn't work. It was simply a cheap joke. Smirch, however, after calling on a girl in Brooklyn who worked in the flap-folding department of a large paper box factory, a girl whom he later described as his sweet patootie, climbed nonchalantly into his ridiculous plane at dawn of the memorable 7th of July, 1937, spit a curve of tobacco juice into the still air and took off, carrying with him only a gallon of bootleg gin and six pounds of salami. When the garage boy thundered out over the ocean, the papers were forced to record in all seriousness that a mad, unknown young man, his name was variously misspelled, had actually set out upon a preposterous attempt to span the world in a rickety one-engine contraption, trusting to the long-distance refueling device of a crazy schoolmaster. When nine days later, without having stopped once, the tiny plane appeared above San Francisco Bay, headed for New York, splutter and choking to be sure, but still magnificently and miraculously aloft, the headlines, which long since had crowded everything else off the front page, even the shooting of the governor of Illinois by the Valetti gang, swelled to unprecedented size, and the news stories began to run to 25 and 30 columns. It was noticeable, however, that the accounts of the epoch-making flight touched rather lightly upon the aviator himself. 
This was not because the facts about the hero as a man were too meager, but because they were too complete. Reporters who had been rushed out to Iowa when Smirch's plane was first sighted over the little French coast town of serly le maire to dig up the story of the great man's life had promptly discovered that the story of his life could not be printed. His mother, a sullen short-order cook in a shack restaurant on the edge of a tourist's camping ground near Westfield, met all inquiries as to her son with an angry, "'Ah, the hell with him. I hope he drowns.'" His father appeared to be in jail somewhere for stealing spotlights and lap robes from tourists' automobiles. His young brother, a weak-minded lad, had but recently escaped from the Preston, Iowa Reformatory and was already wanted in several western towns for the theft of money order blanks from post offices. These alarming discoveries were still piling up at the very time that Pal Smirch, the greatest hero of the 20th century, blear-eyed, dead for sleep, half-starved, was piloting his crazy junk heap high above the region in which the lamentable story of his private life was being unearthed, headed for New York and a greater glory than any man of his time had ever known. The necessity for printing some account in the papers of the young man's career and personality had led to a remarkable predicament. It was, of course, impossible to reveal the facts, for a tremendous popular feeling in favor of the young hero had sprung up like a grass fire when he was halfway across Europe on his flight around the globe. He was, therefore, described as a modest chap, taciturn, blonde, popular with his friends, popular with girls. The only available snapshot of Smirch, taken at the wheel of a phony automobile in a cheap photo studio at an amusement park, was touched up so that the little vulgarian looked quite handsome. His twisted leer was smoothed into a pleasant smile. The truth was, in this way, kept from the youth's ecstatic compatriots. They did not dream that the Smirch family was despised and feared by its neighbors in the obscure Iowa town, nor that the hero himself, because of numerous unsavory exploits, had come to be regarded in Westfield as a nuisance and a menace. Pal Smirch had, the reporters discovered, once knifed the principal of his high school. Not mortally, to be sure, but he had knifed him. And on another occasion, surprised in the act of an, stealing an altar cloth from a church, he had bashed the sexton over the head with a pot of Easter lilies. For each of these offenses, he had served a sentence in the reformatory. Inwardly, the authorities, both in New York and in Washington, prayed that an understanding providence might, however awful such a thing seemed, bring disaster to the rusty, battered plane and its illustrious pilot, whose unheard-of flight had aroused the civilized world to hosannas of hysterical praise. The authorities were convinced that the character of the renowned aviator was such that the limelight of adulation was bound to reveal him to all the world as a congenital hooligan, mentally and morally unequipped to cope with his own prodigious fame. I trust, said the Secretary of State at one of the many secret cabinet meetings called to consider the national dilemma, I trust that his mother's prayer will be answered by which he referred to Mrs. Emma Smirch's wish that her son might be drowned. 
It was, however, too late for that. Spurch had leaped the Atlantic and then the Pacific as if they were mill ponds. At three minutes after two o'clock on the afternoon of July 17, 1937, the garage boy brought his idiotic plane into Roosevelt Field for a perfect three-point landing. It had, of course, been out of the question to arrange a modest little reception for the greatest flyer in the history of the world. He was received at Roosevelt Field with such elaborate and pretentious ceremonies as rocked the world. Fortunately, however, the worn and spent hero promptly swooned, had to be removed bodily from his plane, and was spirited from the field without having opened his mouth once. Thus, he did not jeopardize the dignity of his first reception, a reception illumined by the presence of the Secretaries of War and the Navy, Mayor Michael J. Moriarty of New York, the Premier of Canada, Governors Fanneman, Groves, McFeely, and Critchfield, and a brilliant array of European diplomats. Smirch did not, in fact, come to in time to take part in the gigantic hullabaloo arranged at City Hall for the next day. He was rushed to a secluded nursing home and confined in bed. It was nine days before he was able to get up, or to be more exact, before he was permitted to get up. Meanwhile, the greatest minds in the country in solemn assembly had arranged a secret conference of city, state, and government officials, which Smirch was to attend for the purpose of being instructed in the ethics and behavior of heroism. On the day that the little mechanic was finally allowed to get up and dress, and for the first time in two weeks took a great chew of tobacco, he was permitted to receive the newspaper men, this by way of testing him out. Smirch did not wait for questions. Use guys, he said, and the Times man winced. Use guys can tell the cockeyed world that I put it over on Lindbergh, see? Yeah, made an ass that I'm two frogs. The two frogs was a reference to a pair of gallant French flyers who, in attempting a flight only halfway around the world, had two weeks before unhappily been lost at sea. The Times man was bold enough at this point to sketch out for Smirch the accepted formula for interviews in cases of this kind. He explained that there should be no arrogant statements belittling the achievements of other heroes, particularly heroes of foreign nations. Ah, to hell with that, said Smirch. I did it, see? I did it, and I'm talking about it. And he did talk about it. None of this extraordinary interview was, of course printed. On the contrary, the newspapers, already under the disciplined direction of a secret directorate created for the occasion and composed of statesmen and editors, gave out to a panting and restless world that Jackie, as he had been arbitrarily nicknamed, would consent to say only that he was very happy and that anyone could have done what he did. My achievement has been, I fear, slightly exaggerated, the Times man's article had him protest with a modest smile. These newspaper stories were kept from the hero, a restriction which did not serve to abate the rising malevolence of his temper. The situation was indeed extremely grave, for Pal Smirch was, as he kept insisting, raring to go. He could not much longer be kept from a nation clamorous to lionize him. It was the most desperate crisis the United States of America had faced since the sinking of the Lusitania. 
On the afternoon of the 27th of July, Smirch was spirited away to a conference room in which were gathered mayors, governors, government officials, behaviorist psychologists, and editors. He gave them each a limp, moist paw and a brief, unlovely grin. Hiya, he said. When Smirch was seated, the mayor of New York arose and, with obvious pessimism, attempted to explain what he must say and how he must act when presented to the world. Ending his talk with a high tribute to the hero's courage and integrity, the mayor was followed by Governor Fanneman of New York, who, after a touching declaration of faith, introduced Cameron Spottiswood, second secretary of the American Embassy in Paris, the gentleman selected to coach Smirch in the amenities of public ceremonies. Sitting in a chair with a soiled yellow tie in his hand and his shirt open at the throat, unshaved, smoking a rolled cigarette, Jack Smirch listened with a leer on his lips. I get you. I get you, he cut in nastily. You want me to act like a softy, huh? You want me to act like that mebbity mebbity baby face Lindbergh, huh? Well, nuts to that, see? Everyone took in his breath sharply. It was a sigh and a hiss. Mr. Lindbergh, began a United States senator, purple with rage, and Mr. Bird, Smirch, who was paring his nails with a jackknife, cut in again. Boyd, he exclaimed, oh, for God's sake, that big... Somebody shut off the blasphemies with a sharp word. A newcomer had entered the word, the room. Everyone stood up except Smirch, who was still busy with his nails and he did not even glance up. Mr. Smirch, said someone sternly, the President of the United States. It had been thought that the presence of the chief executive might have a chastening effect on the young hero, and the former had been, thanks to the remarkable cooperation of the press, secretly brought to the obscure conference room. A great, painful silence fell. Smirch looked up, waved a hand at the president. How you coming? he asked, and began rolling a fresh cigarette. The silence deepened. Someone coughed in a strained way. Jeez, it's hot, ain't it? said Smirch. He loosened two more shirt buttons, revealing a hairy chest and the tattooed word Sadie enclosed in a stenciled heart. The great and important men in the room, faced by the most serious crisis in American history, exchanged worried frowns. Nobody seemed to know how to proceed. Come on, come on, said Smirch. Let's get the hell out of here. When do I start cutting in on the parties, huh? And when... Is there gonna be this in it? He rubbed a thumb and forefinger together meaningly. Money? exclaimed a state senator, shocked, pale. Yeah, money, said Pal, flipping his cigarette out of the window. And big money. He began rolling a fresh cigarette. Big money, he repeated, frowning over the rice paper. He tilted back in his chair and leered at each gentleman separately, the leer of an animal that knows its power, the leer of a leopard loose in a bird and dog shop. Ah, oh, for God's sake, let's get someplace where it's cooler, he said. I've been cooped up plenty for three weeks. Smirch stood up and walked over to an open window, 
where he stood staring down into the street nine floors below. The faint shouting of newsboys floated up to him. He made out his name. Hot dog! He cried, grinning, ecstatic. He leaned out over the sill. You tell them, babies! He shouted down. Hot diggity dog! In the tense little knot of men standing behind him, a quick, mad impulse flared up. An unspoken word of appeal, of command, seemed to ring through the room, yet it was deadly silent. Charles K. L. Brand, secretary to the mayor of New York City, happened to be standing nearest Smirch. He looked inquiringly at the president of the United States. The president, pale, grim, nodded shortly. Brand, a tall, powerfully built man, wants a tackle at Rutgers University, stepped forward, seized the greatest man in the world by his left shoulder and the seat of his pants, and pushed him out the window. My God, he's fallen out the window, cried a quick-witted editor. Get me out of here, cried the president. Several men sprang to his side, and he was hurriedly escorted out of a door toward a side entrance of the building. The editor of the Associated Press took charge, being used to such things. Crisply, he ordered certain men to leave, others to stay. Quickly, he outlined a story which all the papers were to agree on, sent two men to the street to handle that end of the tragedy, commanded a senator to sob, and two congressmen to go to pieces nervously. In a word, he skillfully set the stage for the gigantic task that was to follow, the task of breaking to a grief-stricken world, the sad story of the untimely, accidental death of its most illustrious and spectacular figure. The funeral was, as you know, <clears throat> the most elaborate, the finest, the solemnest, and the saddest ever held in the United States of America. The monument in Arlington Cemetery, with its clean white shaft of marble, and the simple device of a tiny plane carved on its base, is a place for pilgrims in deep reverence to visit. The nations of the world paid lofty tributes to little Jackie Smirch, America's greatest hero. At a given hour, there were two minutes of silence throughout the nation. Even the inhabitants of the small, bewildered town of Westfield, Iowa, observed this touching ceremony. Agents of the Department of Justice saw to that. One of them was especially assigned to stand grimly in the doorway of a little shack restaurant on the edge of the tourist's camping ground just outside the town. There, under his stern scrutiny, Mrs. Emma Smirch bowed her head over two hamburger steaks sizzling on her grill, bowed her head and turned away so that the Secret Service man could not see the twisted, strangely familiar leer on her lips. The Greatest Man in the World by James Thurber. Of all the Thurber works, I really think that is the one you could most easily update, expand upon, and make into a 21st century movie. 
I've done all the damage I can do here. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. Everything else was pretty much my fault. And I thank you for bringing us to 200 episodes of this thing. A couple of them have been slightly updated, but you know what I mean, 200. Anyway, that's Countdown for this, the 857th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Monday. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.